But as we continue our worship now by coming to sit under the instruction of God's Word, I want to remind you what we saw last week. So last week, as we continued with our study of the Gospel of Luke, which is what we're doing if you're new to us, we listened in on Jesus' final debate with the religious leaders of Israel who are out to get Him. At this point in the narrative, and we're at the end of the life of Christ, we're days from His crucifixion at this point in the Gospel of Luke. At this point in the narrative, these guys are no longer just trying to embarrass Jesus or marginalize Jesus or minimize Him somehow in the eyes of the people of Israel. Instead, they're trying to entice Him to make some kind of a public statement that they can then take and use to march down to Pontius Pilate and have Him crucified on a Roman cross. That's where we're at. That's what these guys have come to. And again, here's why. Because as we've said the last two or three weeks now, Unlike the disciples of Jesus who welcomed Christ up into the city of Jerusalem for the last time, though that's unbeknownst to them, as their king, these guys, the religious establishment of Israel, welcomed Jesus up into this city of Jerusalem for the last time as threats to their own personal kingdoms. And that's very intentional language. I say it that way because in a very real sense, even though these guys were not politically kings of the people of Israel, however, they did have significant political authority. Don't miss that. Spiritually speaking, these guys reigned and ruled over Jews all over the place, all over the world, and certainly in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas, as king-like figures, really. And here's what gave them that power. What gave them that power was the fact that they controlled the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And here's why that's the case. Because of the first century Jewish mind, the temple in Jerusalem was God's house. Almighty God literally resided on earth, there. So you want to send a letter to God? He actually had an address. You want to put the kids in the van and say, hey, we're going to go see God? You drove to the temple in Jerusalem. It was the place where God lived in their minds. And more than that, it was the place where they could go to become or to enter into the presence of God too. But only through the blood of an innocent lamb. So they'd load the kids in the van plus a lamb, which had to be awkward. I mean, how irritating would that be? Because the lamb's not going to play video games and be quiet, right? So you could leave the lamb at home if you wanted to and just buy one when you arrived. They had a full-blown marketplace where you could do that. But the idea was that a sinful person, a guilty person, a shame-filled person could not come into the presence of a holy, righteous, guiltless, shameless God. And so they would purchase this innocent, perfect lamb And by the blood of the innocent shed for the guilty, at the temple in Jerusalem, they could come into the presence of God, which made the temple in Jerusalem, I think pretty understandably, the most significant place in the entirety of the universe for them. It was the center of their religious life, of their political life, of their social life. Their identity as a nation was all wrapped up, as a people was all wrapped up in this place. And even economically, at least locally, it was the center of their universe, guys. These guys, Matthew makes clear in his version of this really long technical passage of Scripture that we'll look at today in Luke, that even the disciples of Jesus could not imagine the existence of this world in which we live apart from the existence of this temple. In some sense, it was their whole world, which makes what Jesus says to these guys today so stunning. Because Jesus Christ, whom every one of the gospel writers comes and portrays as the true temple of God. Now think about that. Who is Jesus? He is Almighty God who through His supernatural conception clothes Himself in our humanity. He is God and He is man. 
He's the place where God and man come together, and he's the one through whom God and man, meaning you and I too, sinful people come together. Why? Because he's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you see? It's by the shedding of his blood that we claim by faith that we are washed of our sin, our guilt, our shame, and can come boldly, as the writer of Hebrews says, into the throne room of Almighty God himself. We're made his children, his servants, his citizens. Every manner of analogy, all of them wonderful, by which, through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures describe our relationship to God. Everything the temple stood for, the tabernacle stood for, all of this that you read about in the Old Testament, and all of these blood sacrifices are merely arrows pointing toward the true temple who is Jesus and the true Lamb of God who is Christ. See, the real temple is obviated after Him. It's no longer necessary. He's arrived. We don't need the image. We have the reality. But these guys are wrapped up in the image. The image is their whole world. So imagine the shock and awe that these guys experience today when Jesus looks at that temple standing there in Jerusalem and says, oh, you see the temple? Okay, guys, you might want to have a seat because this is going to be pretty big. As difficult as it may be for you to believe this, Within the next 40 years, within a generation of people, which biblically speaking is 40 years, that's not unclear, within the next 40 years, that temple that you guys are marveling over and think is so amazing and it's the center of your universe will be completely dismantled. It will be utterly and thoroughly and totally destroyed. That temple will see its last day within the next 40 years. And for the record, and I'm going to say this every time that I match what Christ says with history, for the record, Jesus makes that statement in April of AD 33, and 37 years later in AD 70, that temple was completely dismantled. It was utterly and thoroughly destroyed. It is one of the most terrifyingly, precisely filled prophecies in all of the Bible. And it once again proves that Jesus knows what he's talking about. And you say, well, great. And what does that have to do with us? Because it's all about that, right? Well, yeah, actually it is with this one exception. Because having made that statement, Jesus will then say something else. He'll then point at this world that we're all living in right now, 2015. And he's going to say, oh, and by the way, it's good that you're seated too. Here's the deal. As the Bible says, all over the place, and even gestures from its very first words where it says, in the beginning, what does that imply? An end, does it not? This world that we're all living in will be dismantled. It is destined for destruction and to be remade. A last day, a final day, is coming for it too. And that's what takes this, frankly, long technical passage of Scripture that speaks almost entirely of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, as I hope you'll see, and makes it applicable to us because what Jesus is doing is he's teaching his disciples then and his disciples now, that's us, how to live in light of a final day, in their case, of the final day of the destruction of Jerusalem, but in our case, by extension, of the final day of the world in which we live in too. So the question we're going to enter into this passage of Scripture with is this, how do we live today in light of the last day? And Jesus is going to teach that to us, at least in part this morning, as we pick up our study in Luke 21, beginning in verse 5. And so we read this, Luke says, and while some of the disciples of Jesus were speaking to Jesus, who, as we saw last week, just completely eviscerated the Pharisees and the scribes, 
He just completely eviscerated the Sadducees. He just took to task and showed to be heretics the whole of the religious leaders of Israel, which, of course, just endeared him even further to them. But he's done with that. And as they're leaving the temple, the idea is they point the temple out to Jesus. And specifically, they point out how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Okay, what they're saying to Jesus is, look at this magnificent temple. Isn't it huge? Isn't it beautiful? And it was huge and beautiful. It was magnificent. It's amazing. You know, I don't know how many of you have been to Israel with us at this point, but we go every couple of years. And if you've been on our trip, one of the things we do is we go to the Western Wall. We go down into the rabbi's tunnel. And we see some of the stones, the Herodian stones from this temple era that were laid as part of the foundation of this wall and great platform upon which this temple, which was completely destroyed in AD 70, as I've already covered, once stood where the Dome of the Rock is today. And as we were walking through there one time, one of our guides said, oh, by the way, this particular stone weighs somewhere between 587 and 623, are you ready? Tons. And then he said, and there's not a crane in the world powerful enough right now to lift that stone. And I thought, what? Can you imagine that? It's immovable. How did they do this? We tend to think they were so primitive. Well, there's all kinds of theories, but the point is, it's solid. It's heavy. We couldn't even move it today. It's permanent, isn't it? Or so it seems. And the temple in Jerusalem was also beautiful. The temple in Jesus' day was the one that was reconstructed by Herod the Great. He doubled its size and he adorned it with outrageous wealth. He covered its lower reaches with huge plates of solid gold. He covered its upper reaches with amazing plates of white gleaming marble. The temple in Jerusalem, as Jesus is saying this, was one of the wonders of the ancient world. When Titus, the Roman general, came to destroy and lay siege to that city, he went up onto Mount Scopus, which is where Hebrew University is located today, and it's generally the first place we go when we go to Jerusalem, because you can, and pun is intended here, scope out, that's the idea, the city from this high spot. And he looked over the city, and he saw this temple and its huge complex, which towered over the city, still does. And he said, boys, whatever you do, don't damage that. That is a pearl in the hand of Caesar. Now, it didn't work out that way. But it was utterly magnificent, huge, permanent, beautiful. And yet Jesus says to these guys who are marveling rightly, understandably, over this building, here we go. Here's the atom bomb from Christ. He says to them in response, here we go, as for these things that you see, meaning for that temple right there that you've just drawn my attention to and you're marveling over, yeah, okay, well, here you go. The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And again, for the record, that's exactly what happened. What happened is somehow, we don't know exactly how, The the temple was set on fire, and the heat from the fire was so great that it literally melted the gold off the side of the building, and in part, it ran in between the stones. So once the fire was over and the Romans had the whole city, including the temple, the Pearl of Caesar had already been wrecked, 
They stripped it of its wealth. How did they do that? By dismantling every single stone. They turned over, literally, every stone to get all the marble off and to get all the gold that had seeped in between the stones out. Stunning. It's amazing. It's terrifyingly precise. And I love the response of the disciples to this shocking, paradigm-shifting, world-changing, we can't imagine the world without this place. You're kidding, right? That's response to this, because here's what it's not. It's not, you're kidding, right? Here's what they didn't do. They didn't laugh in the face of Jesus and go, hey, man, that's a joke. I mean, you're kidding about that, aren't you? You're not actually serious. Listen, Jesus, you've been right about a lot of things. And you've done some cool stuff, like that whole walking on water thing, that just, boom. I mean, we're still confused by that. We have no idea how you did that. It was unbelievable. But look, this is the temple. This is the house of God. We send all our postcards to God here. Well, we put the kids in the van with the lamb and the deal, and now we put them in a trailer because he's too loud and he smells. But when we come to see God, we do it here. No way is this place going to be destroyed? Look, I think you've gone too far this time. I think you maybe need to retract that statement. Issue some kind of a public release that says, I know that I said that and I apologize. It was politically incorrect of me. And, uh, and I take it all back even though I don't. But I do. What they do instead is they give us the response of faith. And here's the response of faith. This is relevant to us. Because another final day is coming. The response of faith is to hear the word of the creator of this world, who incidentally created this world by the power of that word, and then to believe it, no matter what the word is, no matter what the word says, be that about some, you know, seemingly immovable, indestructible temple in Jerusalem that nobody in the world could imagine not being there, at least nobody in Jesus' world, or whether that be about the destruction, the dismantling, the remaking, the renewing, the final day of the world in which we live, which either case, it is to hear the word of the creator of the world, and it is to believe it. And if you think about that, it's highly ironic. Why? Because a word is just breathy. You breathe it out, don't you? The word is ephemeral. It's, it, there's nothing to it. It hangs in the air and then it's gone. The word is intangible. Any word, it comes out of your mouth. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't grab it. And if you could, sometimes you would, wouldn't you? Because it comes out of your mouth and you think, oh, crud, I just said that. And you'd love to grab it and stick it back in and swallow it down before it hits anyone's ears. You can't do it because of the very nature of a word. That word, any word, is very much unlike that massive stone or anything else in this realm. And yet what Jesus is saying here, and I think it's the central point of this whole text is, hey, guys, I know that temple looks real permanent to you. I know this world in which you live in is very tangible and looks really permanent to you. It's immovable. It's all of these things. It's solid. Let me tell you about solid. There is only one solid, beautiful, immovable object in the entirety of the universe. And in the end, you'll all understand this. And it is the Word of God. So however it is that you and I are to learn to live today in light of the coming of the last day, It's going to come to us out of this one solid, beautiful, immovable object that is God's Word. We learn to live it through His Word. And so then what does at least this small part of the Word say to us in that regard 
Verse 7, we read, and so then, instead of laughing at at Jesus for making this crazy-sounding statement, listen to the response of faith, because they asked this question in faith, guys. The disciples of Jesus said, teacher, when will these things be? Not, you're kidding, right? This isn't going to happen. We don't believe. That's ridiculous. We're not going to even interact with you on this. No, no, no. They're believing it. Like, they're buying it. They've had to have smelling salts applied to wake them up, but they're, they're in on the deal. They're, they're, they're for it. Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign, the sign, singular, that these things are about to take place? And here's why they ask that, so that they can be ready for the final day, and that's what we want to be. So let's listen to some of the ways to be ready. Jesus said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand, which for for the record again actually happened in the first century. All these false messiahs began to arose, all of them claiming not to deliver people from sin and death, but claiming to be able to lead a revolution that would deliver them from Rome, and they died en masse with all of their followers. It's part of what provoked Titus and the armies to come to destroy Jerusalem in the first place. It's like, you know what? We've got to teach these people a lesson. We've got to put this rebellion down. Jesus says, look, this is going to happen, false messiahs. Do not go after them. Why does he have to warn them? Why does he have to warn us in some sense not to follow after the false messiahs of this world? Because he knows that we're subject to doing it. We're vulnerable to doing it. And why do we find them attractive? Because they come to us and they promise us things like peace and security and deliverance and significance and purpose and meaning and life and so many other things. And unlike the presently invisible Jesus and his presently invisible heaven and his presently invisible rewards, they're tangible. We have a weakness for the tangible. We're so apt to live in light of what we can see and smell and hear and taste and touch and count and save and invest. And and he's saying, no, you understand that all this tangible stuff is destined to perish. All of it is unreliable. In the end, on the last day, if this is where you've placed your trust, if this is the kingdom you've built, you will have wasted everything. It will all of it be gone, and I'm not going to sneak up on you with that. I'm telling you now. There is only one solid, beautiful, and immovable object in all of the universe, Jesus is saying. And by that word, which is that object, he's telling us in advance, hey, false messiahs will come. They will seduce you. They will draw you into following them. And just like as with those people who follow those false messiahs, they were all of them enslaved. They were all of them suffered that led them to death, it will lead you to death, to enslavement. His word is freedom and it is life. It is designed for our good. And so he continues, he says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, which for the record all took place in the first century, do not be terrified. Now, why does he have to say that? Because those kinds of things scare the snot out of us. They're terrifying. So then what is he saying? He's saying, guys, my people alone in all the earth are not to be terrified by the kinds of things that terrify everyone else. And why is that? What liberates us from that? What frees us from that fear? From all fear, really. 
It is that the one solid, beautiful, and immovable object in all of the earth has promised us that not even death can separate us from our Savior who is Christ Jesus, that we are eternally and for forever safe in Him, and neither will we be eternally separated from everybody else, incidentally, who also loves and serves and believes and finds salvation and eternal life in Him. There is a freedom from fear. And we see it in the disciples. These guys watch Jesus, and we'll see this in a few weeks, be arrested and beaten and tortured and crucified and all of these things. And what do they do? Man, they run like scalded dogs. They're hiding out for fear that they're next. And it's probably a pretty legitimate fear. Okay, we've killed the ringleader. Now let's kill his most intimate disciples. And I think at that point we'll be done with the whole movement called Christianity. And we can just close the book on that, boys, and move forward. Then they see the risen Jesus. And what do they do? They march into the very temple full of the very same guys who had successfully put Christ himself on the cross and preach the gospel. Fearing what? Not a thing. They'd seen a man raised from the dead. I mean, you know, after that, it's like all downhill, isn't it? I'm afraid to go to the dentist. <laughs> yeah, I think, we're, I think we're good on this. You know, just really? I mean, afraid of what? All right, he continues. He says, these things, these tumults, these wars, these things that will terrify, well, everybody, and, but should not terrify, you must first take place, but the end of the temple will not be at once. And then he said to them, and here's all this other stuff that happened in history, incidentally, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Yeah, it took place. And then he says, but before all of this, they meaning the Jews and the Romans, the same people who will lay hands on me and destroy me physically... Well, they're going to lay their hands on you also, you disciples of mine, standing here in A.D. 33, listening to me make this statement in the flesh. And they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, which, for the record, also took place. Just read the book of Acts. It's all there. Exactly what Jesus, as Luke records it for us here, says will happen is exactly what happens, as Luke records it for us, incidentally, also, in the book of Acts. And then he tells us what our perspective on suffering and on persecution for be, should be. He says this, meaning these moments of persecution, these seasons of suffering will be your, here it is, opportunity to do what? To be miserable. To grow angry and bitter and resentful. That's what we do by nature. He's calling us to live supernatural lives, to be different by the power of His Spirit and in the freedom of His gospel. You are free to embrace these things as opportunities to witness, the idea being, to Jesus Himself. He's saying, guys, this is not your big chance to be miserable. This is your big chance to show the tangible, we'll put it in quotes, world around you that the invisible Jesus lives. To make me, the invisible Jesus, visible to this people in this tangible, visible world that is marked to end. And again, if you've read the book of Acts, that is exactly what these guys do. 
And so then in anticipation of that, Jesus says, look, don't freak out about what you're going to say beforehand, you know. Don't settle it, he's saying, or settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer the questions of those who will, in fact, persecute and question you. For I, by my Spirit in those moments, will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict, and you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, but you're to value the invisible Jesus even above them. And some of you, he says, they will even put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. The idea, I think, necessarily being in the eternal life, in the new world to come. You are heading to a place of eternal safety, and indeed, in light of the fact that you belong to Christ now and nothing can separate you, not even death, persecution, torture, etc., from that, you're good. He says, by your endurance, meaning by the endurance of this kind of faith, you will gain your lives, you will prove yourselves to have truly been recipients of my eternal life, and you'll receive my benediction on that last day against which everything is measured. It's the last day. All right, let's stop for a second because that's a lot, okay? We all need a little air, take some oxygen. What again is the question? It's how do we live today in light of the last day? Okay, where again do we find the answer? Uh, In the one solid, immovable, beautiful object in all the universe, which is God's Word. So then what has Jesus thus far, he'll say more in a minute, said to us about how to live today in light of the last day? He said that we're to live today In light of the final day to come as those who, number one, refuse to run after the false messiahs of this world that tangibly promise the things that we're looking for, but can only be found in Jesus. So what are you running after in life? Like, I mean, if you had to identify one thing and you had to be honest, just be honest, God knows anyway, so just be honest. Just you and Him, we're not asking you to shout it out. What have you bent your life around? What are you chasing after? What is your passionate pursuit? What are you running after in life? Is it Jesus or is it something destined to perish? Does it have an eternal effect or is it something that ends with you? Secondly, he has said that we're to live today in light of the final day to come as those who value, I'm sorry, who are no longer terrified by the things that make everyone else in this world terrified. For not even death can separate us from Christ, from the eternal future that is ours, and from anyone else who shares our faith. So secondly, what are you afraid of right now? What's your biggest fear? Because if you're a child of the King, then in the final analysis, and that's the only one that matters, what do you have to be afraid of? Thirdly, he says that we're to live today in light of the final day to come as those who value Jesus even above the most precious things in life. And he's called them out to us. Just to make it clear, like he didn't just make that general statement. He said, okay, how about parents? How about children? How about brothers? How about sisters? Now, they mean more to us than money. We discover that when one of them gets ill. It's like, I don't know how much it costs, but here, you know what? Because that's more valuable. He's saying, let me tell you, there's There's one who is even more valuable. And so then what do you value most in life? Is it Christ or is it something that in the end you'll discover is is infinitely less valuable? Fourthly, thus far, and finally, I think he has said that we're to live today in light 
of the final day to come is those who embrace persecution and suffering in this life as an opportunity to bear witness to the invisible Jesus. And so if you're suffering right now, are you embracing it and using it as an opportunity and thus, in a very real sense, redeeming it by infusing it with meaning and purpose, the meaning and purpose for which it has been given to you? Or are you resenting it? Are you angry about it and thus wasting it entirely? It's an opportunity before your husband or wife, before your children or parents, before your brothers and sisters, before your friends and coworkers, before your little world, to say to your little world in a way that the world will see and understand, hey, you know what? This Jesus that I talk about, this Jesus that I profess to live for, yeah, actually, I do live for him, and he is real, tangible by faith to me, and tangible in the end to all. All right, well, Jesus continues now in verse 20, where he gives these guys something that he doesn't give to us. He gives to them the definitive sign. Remember, they said, what was or what will be the sign, singular? Jesus says, well, all right, I'll tell you. He gives them the definitive sign of the impending destruction of the city of Jerusalem and thus of its temple when he says this. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, there's your clue, boys. That's it then know that its desolation has come near, that its end has come near. And then here's what you need to do, Jesus says. And it must have sounded like crazy language, further crazy language to these people, because it is totally counterintuitive. It is totally countercultural, and it runs contrary to everything they had been raised to do and to everything the people had done throughout history as invading armies approached. He says, then let those who are in Judea in this big area of land in which Jerusalem is located flee to the mountains to the east as opposed to the city of Jerusalem. And that is the opposite of what everybody had always done. Like nobody heard this and thought, oh, that's brilliant. Let's do that. Nobody. As invading armies had approached throughout history, here's what these guys did. They fled to the city of Jerusalem, and why? Because of its ginormous walls, its great, big, permanent, immovable stones. They fled to the safety of the walls of the city. Jesus is saying, big mistake. Do not do that. Those walls that look so permanent are destined to perish. They will be dismantled. They'll be breached. They will not give you what you think they will give you. And so then he says, flee to the mountains to the east instead. And in fact, let those who are already inside of the city, yeah, let them flee to the mountains too. Get out of the city and let not those who are out in the country, in case you missed it the first time, enter into it for those or these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written and for the record yet again. Guess what all the Christians did? A, they rightly understood this passage of Scripture, which we typically today do not. And B, as a result of that, they obeyed its message. They fled to the east. They fled out of the city. They went through the mountains. They went through the Jordan Valley. They crossed over the Jordan River, and they headed north to the city of Pella. And by their obedience to this insane-sounding advice which yet is the word of the one who created the world. And what are we to do with that word? Believe it. Live it out, no matter what it says. By their obedience to this word, they were saved. Jesus goes on and he continues about how bad it's going to be. 
He says, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who were nursing infants in those days. That too is ironic. That which typically brings blessing in those days? No. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. All of this happened. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Now, I've added the word by the Roman Gentiles because that is obviously the group that he's talking about. Until the time of the Gentiles, meaning until this judgment of God that God brings upon this city, this leadership, this people who have stood opposed to his purposes in the person of his own son and put him to death on a cross, okay, until that judgment is complete, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then Jesus uses the kind of language that's only confusing to us because we hear it with our 21st century ears. But these people in the first century would have understood this very easily. He says, and there will be signs in, the, there will be signs in, in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves and people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What is that? That is what you call apocalyptic language. It's the kind of language that is also used in other places in the Bible. And what is it used for? To describe God literally coming on a cloud? The sun actually being darkened and the moon not giving forth any of its light and the stars being wiped out from the heavens? Is, is that what it, what it describes? It's not what it describes. It's not what it's used for. Again and again throughout the Old Testament and now here, it is used to describe the judgment of God that God is bringing upon a particular people at a particular time through the invading armies of another people. Big time judgment, but it's spoken of in poetic language, meant to inspire awe and fear and terror and good grief, this is going to be a really big deal. I'll give you two examples. Isaiah 13, verses 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars, here we go, of the heavens and their constellations will not give forth their light and the sun will be dark at its rising when it's brightest and the moon will not shed its light. Okay, what is Isaiah talking about? Because the context of this statement makes it clear, and the way that it played out in history likewise makes it clear. He's talking about the judgment that God was prophesying would come, and then in fact did come upon Babylon through the instrumentality of the armies of the Medes. Check that one off the list, but you see the example of how the language is used and then fulfilled. We see it again in Isaiah 19. Beginning in verse 1, an oracle concerning Egypt. So they're called out specifically. Behold, the Lord is what? riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Again, what is Isaiah talking about? Because again, in the context and as it played out, it's not a mystery. He's talking about the judgment that God will, as of this statement, but then did bring upon Egypt through the armies of the Assyrians. You see, and Jesus is doing the same thing, except here he's talking about the judgment that God is going to bring upon the city of Jerusalem, upon the leadership of Israel, upon the people for having rejected the Messiah, the greatest crime of all. And then that he did do 
in AD 70 through the invading armies of Rome. And so having described these things, Jesus then says this, and it's awesome. Verse 28, he says, now when these things begin to take place, what are you to do? You people of faith, how do you receive, how do you see the final day? Be that of Jerusalem or of this world? What kind of a day ought that to be for us? He says, straighten up and raise your heads. Heads that have been beaten down in oppression. Heads that have been bowed under the cares and concerns and persecutions of this world. This is the day of your redemption. This is the day of your deliverance. This is the day that you've been longing for, living for, the day upon which your life alone finally makes complete and total sense and is utterly vindicated before everyone. This day is a good day. It's the greatest of all days. For you, he's saying, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near and you are to receive this day very differently from those who do not have faith in the Lord. It's a day of celebration for you. And then Jesus told them a parable. He said, look at the fig tree and all the trees and as soon as they come out in leaf, you can watch them seasonally is the point. You see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, You know that the kingdom of God in judgment on Jerusalem is near. And now don't miss this, because here's where he dates it. Here's where he says, oh yeah, and all of this within the next 40 years. He says, truly, I say to you, what? This generation, and a generation is 40 years. This generation standing here with me, listening to this right now, will not pass away. They will not all die until everything that I've just said to you up until this moment has taken place. And again, April of 8033, he says it 37 years later in 8070, it happens exactly the way that he said that it would. But then he gives us the last line. It's the last one that we'll look at today. And this is the one where he speaks to us. He says, just like that temple that was destroyed back in AD 70, guys. All right, let me just make it clear. Heaven and earth will also pass away. But my words will not pass away. And why is that? Because ironically, it really is ironic. Unlike all of the things that we chase after and trust in and look to in this life that are tangible, God's Word is actually the only solid, beautiful, immovable object. And all of this other stuff is what's breathy. All of this other stuff is what's ephemeral. It's it's here, but it's gone. It hangs there, and then it's gone. All of this other stuff is what's intangible. All of this other stuff is what will be gone, and the Word of the Lord alone in the end stands. And so then, in addition to everything we went through at the break in the middle... We've also learned that we're to live today in light of the final day as those who, first of all, live lives that betray the conventional wisdom of our day. As we embrace a wisdom from another world that incidentally works in this world. And why does it work in this world? Because the creator of this world has made it 
to be so, and it's self-evident. Just like the laws of physics work in this world that God has created, the laws of life, too, work in this world that God has created. And here's the deal. People will, over time, see that it works as you follow it in your life. I remember when I was a kid, we had some neighbors across the street, great people, and they had a beagle, and I was like, you know, nine or something. And so I would take care of their beagle. They were both in the airline industry, and so I would go across the street, and they gave me a key, you know, and let me in, and I'd feed the dog. His name was Buddy. They loved Buddy. I mean, like, it was puppy love. It was a little bit weird, honestly, but uh, but Buddy was cute, and Buddy was worth, you know, like 10 bucks a day to me when they were out of town. So I, I loved Buddy, too. Buddy was one of my very best friends at the time. Um, but what happened there is that they developed a relationship with my parents that just continued. You know, like, we moved, and then they moved, and then we moved again, and then they moved. We all stayed in the same city, and somehow they just kind of all stayed connected. And, and their lives ended up being very, very different. Very, very different. And I remember going to one of their newer houses for dinner with my folks and my brothers one time, and then we left, and then I was talking to my dad later, and he said, you know, Jerry pulled me aside. You know, we've known each other for 20 years or whatever it was at that point. And he said, you know, I've had the opportunity to observe your life over the last 20 years. I've been living my life the way that I, I thought would be most freeing. <laughs> In some sense, according to the wisdom of this world, I'm putting words in his mouth, but that's it. You get the point. And, and you guys have stayed together. You, you know, you guys have raised some kids that seem to be reasonably sane. Uh, you know, I, I look at, at what's happened and how your life has played out, and I, I look at what's happened and how my life has played out, and I, I what in the world did you do differently? The wisdom of the Lord. Humble submission and faith to His Word, to His principles. It's, it's listening to the Word of the one who created the world and then believing it and then doing what He says. Even though to everybody else, it looks like insanity. What you do that with your money, that's crazy. What you do that with your sex life, that's crazy. Who does that? And on and on the categories go. Categories of freedom. Categories that lead to life. Lastly, we've seen that we're to live today in light of the final day to come as those who embrace the final day as a day of celebration because the punishment we deserve, Christ absorbed for us wholly on the cross. All of our sin is forgiven past, present, and future. We are totally safe in Him. And it is the day of our deliverance. It is the day in which we stop looking down and look up. It's a day of joy for us and for all who through us come to faith in this Jesus. Look, a day is coming and that ought to amp up our urgency about telling people about Him. So think about all that as you work through this, frankly, long and complicated passage of Scripture that I just want for the record, since Matt and Carter complain so much about the passages I give them, to note that I did. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the living word who is Jesus Christ. God, the Savior, the Redeemer, the King of the world, the one who has everything and had everything and emptied himself of everything 
He humbled himself and entered into this world as one of us, the true temple, the place where God and man dwell, the the true Lamb of God who takes away our sin as we claim that blood sacrifice to death on our behalf, the innocent dying for the guilty that we might be forgiven and our guilt and sin and shame be washed away. Lord, you speak of your salvation, you speak of your world, you speak of its end, of its remaking. You speak of the hope that is ours in Christ. You give us all manner of wisdom for living, and not just for our benefit, though it's beneficial, but ultimately that we might live lives in this world that give testimony to the reality of an invisible Jesus who is only invisible for now, but who will return, and He will be very visible then. Lord, we look forward to that day of redemption, of deliverance, of salvation, of reward, But God, make us effective servants of you. Inspire in us a passion to use our lives, to spend our lives, to give our lives away that others might know the same joy that we have in you. Do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.